yeah, before we get started, let me say uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we're glad to be here, me and my family. Uh, and I always want to say uh, thank you for your support of RUF. Uh, your church as an institution supports RUF and a number of you individually. So thank you. God's at work on campus, and uh, we're glad to be there uh, doing that. And uh, certainly glad to be with y'all and get to see some familiar faces and uh, be back with some folks that we haven't seen in a while. So, yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, we are going to be looking at Psalm 87, verses 1 through 7. So let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people's this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say all my springs are in you. The Bible says that all men are like grass and that all of man's glory is like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and flowers fade away, but God's word stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it more this morning. Heavenly Father, we do stop for a moment and come before you and ask that you would be with us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who speaks. You don't have to. You don't have to reveal yourself, but you want us to know you. And so you've given us your word, and Father, as, as the author of it, we ask that you would be here by your Holy Spirit and you would be the teacher of it. You would be the great applier of your word. Father, would you please work in spite of my shortcomings as a speaker, in spite of our distractions, in spite of our, our sin? Would you be here so that we might hear what you would have us to hear? Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, several months ago when I was working on this uh, passage we did, we went through Psalms, um, uh, I guess last spring with RUF, and one morning I read a news story, I opened my Google News page, and there was a news story that actually wasn't about something awful, which was a big switch. And it was about these two friends, these two high school students, I believe they were from Arkansas, and these two students were best friends, uh, was a guy named Brandon Qualls and a guy named Tanner Wilson, and Brandon uh, is in a wheelchair, and he had always had a, a sort of the basic hand-operated model. So he would have to, you know, his energy propelled himself. And he had always dreamed of having one of the nice electric ones so that he didn't get so worn out throughout the course of his day. And, of course, his best friend, Tanner, of course he knew that, that Brandon wanted that. And so without Brandon having any knowledge Without giving any hint or Brandon knowing anything about it, uh, Tanner, his best friend for two years, saved every dime that he made 
in his part-time after-school job. Every penny, he saved it, and he bought his friend Brandon a brand-new electric wheelchair. Surprised him, completely out of the blue. It's a beautiful story. And I want you to think of, I want you to imagine being Brandon in that moment when your best friend, who you know loves you, you know he cares about you. And then all of a sudden, he, he shows you, he says, look, look at this. I've done this for you. I want you to think about that moment where you would, where you would have that realization that his love for you is, is it's even bigger than you've ever realized. You know he loves you, but now you, you have this moment of, wow, he really loves me. Have you ever had an experience like that? Uh, if you're a parent, you very well might have uh, had that experience. It, it makes me think of when we started having kids and you begin to realize the magnitude of what it means to be a parent, uh, the, all the, the sacrifice that comes with it. And you begin to realize at some point, hopefully, hopefully, that this is what my parents did for me. And so maybe you've had that experience where you realize, well, I knew my parents loved me, but now I have a deeper appreciation for their love. Well, I think that that is what this psalm, Psalm 87, is really about. I think this psalm helps us, we could say, feel the love of God in an even deeper way. A couple semesters ago, we studied through the Psalms, like I said, and our theme every week was dealing with feeling. Because the Psalms are songs, and songs really traffic in emotion. They help us, they help us uh, deal with our feelings. They help us to express our feelings. They can help shape our feelings. Uh, and really, Psalms do the exact same thing. Psalm 87, I think, helps us to feel the love of God. And it does so by looking uh, at the city of Zion, which is Jerusalem. It's God's people where they would gather together and worship at the temple and where God would meet with them. So this morning we're going to look at three things about Zion. First, we're going to see how God feels about Zion. Secondly, we're going to look at who God brings into Zion. And thirdly, we're going to look at how God brings people into Zion. So that's where we're heading. So first, how God feels about Zion. And what we see overall is that more than anything else, God loves Zion. He loves his people. Look at verse 2. The Lord loves the gates of Zion. He likes, he loves being with them more than anything else. He absolutely delights in his people. Uh, the way the Bible talks about how God delights and loves his people all throughout, you get all sorts of different pictures, uh, but it's pretty amazing. You get uh, Zephaniah 3.17 talks about how God sings love songs over his people. Uh, you get the picture of uh, the, the love of a husband for a wife. It talks about God's love for his people in terms of treasured possession, of an inheritance. We can say that his people, God, who is Lord over absolutely everything, that what he looks at that makes him feel rich is his people. 
He really does love his people. A friend of mine years ago was sitting in a coffee shop, and I think just out of college, he was sitting in a coffee shop, and this older gentleman came up to him, and he, he asked him, he said, son, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And my friend said, well, actually, I, I do. And he said, he smiled really big, and he said, then I want you to know that God has a picture of you in his wallet, and he walks around heaven, and he just loves to show it to people because he loves you. Now, look, I don't know that, that, that God literally does that, has a picture of you in his wallet, but, but you get the idea. Maybe it's a little corny, but the sentiment there is beautiful and I think really reflective of, the, of, of reality. That God actually loves you. He doesn't just tolerate his people. He doesn't just, he doesn't just let you in and let you be his people because he, he said, all right, if you believe in me, I, you know, I, I said I'd do this. It's not just some sort of cold contract. He really loves his people. And that might tend to slide right past us, uh, especially if, we've, if you've grown up in the church, if you've heard that your whole life. And if so, we've got to keep in mind who this is talking about. We've got to keep in mind who or what Zion is. Because Zion, or Israel, however we want to talk about it, God's people are actually not a very lovely people. In fact, their track record throughout the Old Testament is terrible. So it's actually really shocking that this psalm would say that God loves Israel. They were regularly worshiping other gods, doubting God. Uh, you can read in 2 Kings 21, tells us about uh, King Manasseh, who was king in Judah, uh, where Jerusalem is, and for a while. And it says that he leads God's people so far astray from God into worshiping other gods that they even end up sacrificing their children to a god named Molech. And it says, the text says, that, that they were worse than the people that they kicked out of the land. In other words, they're the worst people that there are. And so what it shows us is that for God to love Zion is an amazing fact. It means that God actually loves Zion purely by grace. And from what we see in the New Testament, Zion is a picture of the church, of us as believers, God's people. So we have to keep in mind that if, if you're here this morning, you're a believer, that that's a picture of, that's a picture of you. It's a picture of me. The reality is that God really does truly love his people. And the only way that we're going to find that wonderful is if we really know the truth and begin to internalize the truth that we're not actually that lovely inherently. But God's love is still true, and his grace is still free to people like us. And we're going to sort of drill down into that in, in just a minute, our second point. But one other thought uh, on this point. Did you notice where it says, uh, notice that it says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. All right, so what does that mean? That he loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And basically what he's saying is that as much as God does love every Israelite when they're at home in their own individual homes and doing what they do during the week, 
as much as he does actually love people in, in those situations, that there's something very unique. There's something very particular about God's people being gathered together as a people. That, that there is a sense in which he can say, his love is there in a very unique way. And so again, for us, that's the church. That's what we're doing this morning, right here, when we're gathered together. And so look, just a couple of applications that I think are pretty simple, but if you're here and you're, if you're not a believer, and we're really glad you're here, but if you're not a believer, but you're, you're interested in, in God, and you're interested in his love, then the Bible and we would look at you and say, and I think this text is helping us see that this is the place you need to be. You need to be right here in the midst of God's people in the church. And if you are a believer and you're looking to experience God's love deeper, maybe afresh, then this is exactly where we need to be. If you want to find God and find his love for you, if you want to grow in it, then there is no better place than right here in the midst of God's people. And I think about what that means because, yet, yeah, look, obviously I don't know your church, but I know it's a church, and I know your people. And so I know that I can say that mercy is probably, a, and from what I've heard and can tell, a wonderful church. And it's got its issues. It's got its problems. I'm sure it does. But think about that. That even with all that, even with the problems, that God's love, if you want to find it, it manifests in a particular way when we get together. What an amazing fact. It's part of the good news. That God doesn't leave us alone, but he brings us together. We need to move on. Uh, so the second, we need to look at our second point. Secondly, we need to take a look at who God brings into Zion. Uh, this is in verses 4 through 6. So we see God truly does love his people. Uh, but this psalm helps us to really feel the true depth of that because it shows us who the residents of Zion really are. Uh, this may not, you know, as we read through it, may not be a, a particularly shocking section to you today, but for the original hearers of this psalm, I can almost guarantee that this was, this was shocking to read for the first time. All right, so why would that be? Well, we need to understand who these nations are that are listed. Rahab is Egypt. We see that in Isaiah 30. So Egypt was Israel, God's, God's people, really their first major enemy in the Bible. Uh, they were enslaved there 400 years, right? The whole Exodus story out of Egypt. Uh, and then you have Babylon. Babylon was essentially Israel's last major enemy, the one that takes over Israel and Judah and exiles them. Philistia, that's the, the Philistines that are always fighting against and giving Israel trouble. Um, so all of these nations that are listed here are enemies of the people of God. They're all enemies. So do you see how this begins to show us God's love in an even, an even bigger way? It begins to expand. That God doesn't just love people that are bad. 
He loves people that have declared him their enemy. That have looked at him and said, not only do I not want any part of you, I want you to go away. It's incredibly powerful. right? Love for one's enemy is not something that we see very often. And when you see it, it's really amazing. Uh, I came across a story uh, from World War II. Uh, happened December 20th, 1943. It was an American B-17 bomber that was part of a big, uh, big bombing mission in Germany. And one, uh, and then they come under heavy fire from the Germans, from the ground, from the air. And this one B-17, piloted by a guy, uh, guy named Charlie Brown, just got torn apart, absolutely shredded. Several, several of the crew was uh, was dead, and the plane was barely able to stay in the air, and so they, they have to get out of the fight if they're going to make it at all. And so this B-17 gets out of, the, out of the thick of the fight and is, is trying to get home, at which point a uh, German, fighter, uh, German fighter piloted by a guy named Franz Stigler sees the plane, and he bears down on it. And I want you to keep in mind for the... For the purposes of this illustration, you got to put yourself in the in the mind in the mindset of, of the German folks. America is the enemy. I think it can be easy to hear this and be like, you know, if he's going to help America, he's a good guy, right? Helping the good guy. But America's the enemy. These are the people that showed up to your country and bombing it. So he sees his enemy, and he bears down on it. And he's just about to just lay waste to this uh, American bomber, which would have been really easy. But he says as he, as he gets up on it, he says he can see dead crew members in the plane. He said he, was, he, he really couldn't understand how it was still flying because it was so destroyed. And he said in that moment, he had pity on him. And so instead of shoot him down, which would have been really easy, what he did was essentially signaled to the pilot that he was going to lead him out. So, some accounts seem to indicate that he was going the wrong way, thought he was heading back to England, but wasn't. That he was going to lead him out and make sure he made it home, which he did. Somehow it made it back to, to England. It's a beautiful picture. And you, if you want to really cry, get on YouTube and you can search. Uh, they have, you can watch video of interview. When these two guys meet up years later and they talk, it's unbelievable. It's an amazing thing to see love for one's enemy. That's what, uh, what did we see? Uh, that's why we write things down. Frozen 2. It's the theme of Frozen 2. Love for the enemy. Go see it. And look, that's just a little taste of what this psalm says about how God loves his enemies. How he loves people and brings in people that hate him. And it's these people that God says are included in his people. It's amazing. 
I want you to think about this. How can this be a song that God would want his people to sing? Or how, maybe a better question, how could this be, how could this ever be a song that any one of God's people would want to sing about their enemies? And I think the answer is the only way would be if God's people really knew that they weren't any better than the enemies. In other words, if God's people recognized what's really true about themselves, that we declared God to be enemy too, so that we're not any different. And so we have to ask ourselves, have you realized that about yourself? Have you ever had that realization that that everyone, including yourself, including me, that we came into this world naturally bent against God, that we're, that we're naturally his enemy. Not that he declares us enemy, but that we look at him and declare him to be enemy. My old campus minister used to say, I would never say this to college students. I do. My old campus minister used to say, we, we flip both middle fingers in God's face. That's our natural disposition. And now look, that doesn't, that doesn't look like, probably, very well may not look like us literally doing that or literally declaring out loud or in our hearts, I, God is my enemy. It probably doesn't look like that. But what it probably looks like is we declare him the enemy because he just is king over everything. But we want to be king. I want to do what I want to do. And you want to do what you want to do. And so it probably looks more like saying, I'm going to deal with my life the way I want to deal with it. I'm going to deal with my money the way I want to deal with my money. I'll handle my sexuality the way I'll handle my sexuality. It doesn't have anything to do with you. I'll handle my whatever that way. But Romans, listen to Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Look, it's amazing to see the love of a friend for a friend, like those two guys from the beginning, Brandon and Tanner. That's a beautiful thing. But, you have, but we've got to see that God loves us even though we've declared him the enemy. And if we see that, and to the degree in which we, that really gets down into our bones, then that's going to change how we think about other people. It's going to change how we think about our enemies. And look, you very well, we very well may not have enemies. People that, you know, it might be easy to sit here and think, I don't have any enemies. There's nobody I just hate. So think about it like this. Who are those people for you? Because everybody's got those people. You may not have any enemies, but you got those people. So who are they? Uh, it might be, who are the people that you look at? Who are the people that you look at, and, and they're just, at least to some degree, a little beneath you? Uh, is it the, you know, maybe it's the, the Democrats. Maybe it's the Republicans. Uh, maybe it's the homosexual community. Maybe it's the rich people. Maybe it's the poor people. 
Maybe it's, maybe it's non-believers. Maybe it's people of a different denomination or a different theological conviction or a different worship style. Maybe it's, maybe it's the TCU people or the Baylor people or the A&M people or the UT people. Who are those people? Because God brings in his enemies because he loves them. And the more that we, the more that we believe that, the more we're going to be prone to love those people and to reach out to them and serve them. So we've seen that God loves his people. We've seen what kind of people they are that were enemies. So thirdly and finally, we need to look at how God brings people into Zion. Uh, Verses 4 through 6 Um, the psalm helps us to feel the love of God even deeper because it shows us that not only does God love his enemies, but the way in which he brings them in is really amazing. Notice in verses 4, 5, and 6, he's speaking about his enemies, and notice that God records their names, and he says, this one was born there. So do you see what he's saying? That God is taking someone that was born in Babylon, a sworn enemy, and he's bringing them into his city. And he doesn't just bring them in and say, okay, we're not going to kill you. You can exist here. He brings them in and he says, you were born here. You're not second class. You're one of us. He brings them in. It's the picture of of adopting his enemies into his own family. It's the picture of giving them a new identity so that they're not who they once were. He says, you're not a Babylonian. You're one of us. You're not an enemy. You're my child. It's beautiful. Look, if if you ever get the chance to go to if you ever get the chance to go to an adoption hearing, you need to take it. I've learned that since coming to Texas over the last several years. Um, it's it is a beautiful thing. Uh, typically, the family uh, will invite. They would like to have as many folks there uh, to to come and it shows support and can help show the judge that this family is going to be a good family and have lots of support with them. And so you'll get invited, and you'll have things to do because you're a busy person, and you're, would be great, but I do have, go. Trust me on this one. It is an absolutely beautiful thing to watch. And look, Macy knows this. I'm going to cry through this illustration too, and it'll be okay. I've seen this. I've seen this twice since moving to Waco, two families in our, in our church. And <clears throat> I want to try to tell you a story about one of them. Uh, so one, one family, uh, it's a, a white family in our church. They have four of their own kids, and they were foster parents to two African-American boys that were biological brothers. And they were foster parents for, for quite some time. And initially didn't have plans on uh, adopting, but 
<clears throat> their mind began to change. And uh, obviously the, the, the boys wanted to stay with the family. And then one day, the, uh, the, the day comes, and they tell them the good news. They tell these boys, we're going to adopt you. You're going to be part of our family. And they're obviously thrilled by that. And one of the kids, one of the kids says, uh, when do we get when do we get our B names? And they're all excited, and they say, well, uh, what, do you, what do you mean your, your B names? And they say, your, your, our, our B names. Your kids all have names that start with B. You know, Billy and Bobby and, you know, whatever. When do we get our B names? And they say, oh, oh, right. Well, your, your first names don't change, just your last name. And, they, and the kids said, well, we want to be, we want names like our brothers and sisters. And so, in that moment, what do you think they said? They said, okay, what do you want your names to be? And the first kid looks and he says, I want to be Brooks. And they said, you're going to be Brooks. And the second kid says, what do you want to be? The second kid says, I want to be Blaze. And they said, okay, you're going to be Blaze. <laughs> they changed their first name and their last name. Now, why did they do that? Because they wanted those kids to know. They wanted those kids to feel you were born here. No different. Just like you're one of ours just like you're one of ours. And look, that's what this psalm is showing us. That God gives us a new identity. That he brings us in and he doesn't just tolerate us. He brings us in and he doesn't just like us. He brings us in he doesn't just love us. He gives us an entirely new identity as his child. He gives us a totally new life. It's what Jesus talks about in John 3 <clears throat> when he's talking uh, with Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus that if someone is going to be a part of the kingdom of God, uh, then, uh, sorry, where'd it go? Uh, then they have to be born again. So if you're going to be part of the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again. In the Greek, you know, if you've studied this, you know the Greek's ambiguous. Does that mean that you've got to be uh, reborn, start over? so to speak, or does it mean born from above? And it seems to be intentional because it's both. It seems to be both. Jesus tells about this possibility of you get to start over and you get this new life. You get this new identity. God invites in his enemies regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, and he gives you a whole new reality. So what's that new reality? How does it happen? It's last thought. John 3, 14 and following. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. 
that what we see is that Jesus, Jesus showed up. God himself showed up. That's what we celebrate at Advent. That's what this is all about. That for his enemies, he didn't just wave a wand. He didn't just send out a declaration and say, all right, we're going to fix that. He showed up. He came himself. And he switched places with his enemies. He gave us his righteousness. And he took on himself all the, all the wrath, all the punishment of what being an enemy, a God-hater, really deserves. So that he could bring us in, so that we get his identity. So that the Bible says later in John, they're, they're literally, and I'm using that word correctly, there literally is no difference between the love that God has for Jesus Christ and the love that God has for you, if you're in him. That's the good news. That's the great news. And that's, that's what's offered to me and you even this morning. Once you take it, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what an amazing reality that you actually love people that have declared you to be an enemy. That you have forgiven and that you have accomplished an amazing salvation yourself. Father, would you, would you make that reality true of everyone in this room? the reality of your gospel would reign true in our hearts. Father, we pray that that would happen even, even this morning, even for, for one person. And we ask it, we thank you, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.